All right, hello and welcome to Barbarian in the Valley. You have just experienced the first hour of semi-coherency, and we're going to be heading into our live hour in just a minute. I biked once again the basin of the valley, that real flat land between my house in Florence and the beautiful studio here at UMass Amherst. It's just gorgeous. And what a weekend, just shining and bright, as if the gods had really looked upon us and taken stock in all that they've put us through in the last little while in terms of the rain and cold and just said, let's just give them the best three-day weekend possible. I raised a seat on my bike, and boy, I shaved off about 10 minutes on my bike ride. 10 minutes. Raised the seat. Well, here's what happened last week. I was raising the seat, and it kept slipping down, you know? And I know I'm a heavy guy, but I'm like, there's got to be a way to keep this seat up here. And I kind of finally figured it out. So I raised the seat this time, and I was just a machine. I'll tell you what, no one passes me on this trip, and I pass many. Um, So that's usually my vector for if I'm doing well. So I 10 minutes off on the way over <clears throat> so and i see people sometimes on their bikes and they're super low and i really want to pull them aside and say you've got to raise your seat like that's your pistons guy that's your legs they got to be fully extended so if you're out there on your bike really fully extend your leg okay because it's painful to watch oh man i just had the biggest plans this weekend i can't tell you just like these visions it's a vision of a weekend so last night i took my kids to the Amherst Carnival Uh, and uh, you know that vision turned into a nightmare because my three-year-old just had the most fun and then just melted down so hard and that's just the way it is you know that is just the way it is the first time at your carnival you're gonna have both the most fun in your life and inflict the most amount of misery on those around you when you want to go back on the cars and tonight we're looking at a camp out in the backyard and please please Lord please Lord just keep it. Just keep them reasonable, okay? Because I'm throwing all this energy in. Um, all right, uh, security alert! Security alert! I got to be careful. This is actually broadcast radio, but let's say UMass security alert. Somewhere on this campus right now, there's an orange van parked. All right, listen. Uh, you're not on. You're not on. Okay, I, Waylon. Waylon's in the studio, but he's not on. So, yeah, you'll find out when you're on. So somewhere out there in the, you know distance is a orange van probably illegally parked. Waylon's a little worried because he caught some stink eye. And so, you know, this could be... You keep wanting to talk in that mic. I'm telling you, it's not on. You don't come on until later. You can talk, but no one will listen to you because you're not on. So if you see an orange van, this could be the day to tow it. Okay, that's the goal of this show. The goal of the show is to inform the valley about stuff and be kind of semi-coherent, but the real goal is to get orange. The orange van... What's the name of that van? Bessie or Smessy or Vanessa. That license plate is B free. So if you don't want to tow that thing, that's your problem, okay? It's begging to be towed. Now, we're going to talk about the decline in religion in the United States on this. This is something that we talked about last week. Elena Fragamini joined us. And um, that is a subject we actually got on. And it seems like such a good topic, really. And a safety net that's kind of vanishing or has vanished in the United States. The question we have is... If you were raised in a religion, what would it take for you to return to that religion? But I just want to be clear about something. This is just a prompt. So if any point you want to call into the show and, and kind of address, make a comment or a question about what we're talking about, please, please do. You know, we've, got, we've gotten a call, one call a week. So we're building from our base out there. And don't be shy. You know, this is all friends here. Um, so the number with that, 413 413- 
545-3691. And that can be really about anything that we, we're touching on in terms of the decline of religion. We'll be back in just a minute, and Jeremy Whalen will be joining us. Enjoy. Asos Rocksarathustra. Coming back, coming back into the studio now, leaving that Prague Rock Zone to be returned to later. And uh, we have Jeremy Whalen with us. Oh, hold on, Jeremy. Now you are oh, live. Okay. You can whatever. So now I can talk now, God. Yeah, whatever, <laughs> whatever slight that needs to be addressed. You see, Cody's now. in his monologues over here, and I'm just mm. dying, chomping at the bits to get in. Yep. Can we all just take a moment to reflect that no one passes Norm on the bike trail? So he's taking the Autobahn over here, mm. passing six and seven year olds on their huffies, and then looking back and criticizing them in the dust. <laughs> well, are you saying there's no good bikers on the bike path? Because that's a level of arrogance that's way beyond mine. Well, I don't know if a good bikers, but every, every one of the professional bikers I see are honking at me and taking up the road and, you know, generally being, you know, aggressively... Oh, they're not on the bike path? No. I don't oh, really? You I don't, don't think the good bikers are I don't are see them. Yeah, maybe you're Because right they're probably going that. over, you know, 10 miles an hour. <laughs> well, there's no reason you can't go over 10 miles per hour on the bike path, but it is an interesting thought. Maybe you're right. They just don't go on the bike path. Yeah, well, I don't mind passing six-year-olds. Yeah, I used to, when I was in New York City, that was like, when I would go on the Manhattan Bridge, that would be, no one can pass me. Now, yeah, I'm not saying... Like in, what is it like in New York driving a bike? Is it, can you even do it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I spent years on my bike. I wasn't in the subway for years. I'd be, I'd be terrified. I think you would get used to it. 
Yeah, but you have to have bike eyes. I mean, you ride a motorcycle. Yeah. So there's a kind of, I call it bike eyes. And if you haven't done it for a while, you don't. But it also is like a racquetball. It's really good for that. You know, racquetball is something they do a lot in the military. I don't know if you know that on military bases. Oh, like yeah. Just because of the square footage you well, can Well, I think it's square footage. It's easy to make. It's a center block sense. thing. But it's also great for peripheral vision. And, you know, kind of seeing stuff come from, from all directions. Kind of like a firefly, right? Huh. And so biking in New York's like that, too. You really have to be keyed in. Um, it's actually exhilarating yeah. and fun. And I, they put bike paths in or in bike lanes. I don't actually like those. Like, I preferred the way it was before. I don't think anybody would respect the bike lane in, in New York. Well, no, but it's like a, excuse me, it's like an actual, like a car couldn't get into it kind of thing. Oh, they have, It's yeah, like a separate thing. When's the last time you were in the city? Oh, man. Um, I don't know. A couple of years ago. Okay. But yeah, no, I, I go for there. little stints. Yeah. Like 24 hours and I'm like... I got to get out of here. Yeah, you're an interesting. A, I'm not a city man. Yeah, see, it's, that's interesting about you because, you know, I think I think that's true about you. You've made a life for yourself in the valley that's really yeah. full and kind of cutting edge in a way. Uh, whereas usually young cutting edge people want to go to the cities, so that makes you a little different. Yeah, all my all my friends, you know, went to the city. They I mean, went to Boston or New York. My thing. This is where I get stuck. Okay. I read an article. One this time. is one of the places where you get stuck. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Usually it's in my van. But uh, I read an article one time. Guy passed away, old man passed away on the subway, wasn't found for like 24 hours. And pe- like people are getting on the subway and everything. And I was just like, man, it's just a bunch of ants. Like step back, just look, for, look at it from afar. And there's just, it's just, I feel like, I feel insignificant when I go to a city. And you yeah. know me, I got a big ego. So it's like, when you step into that, you just like really have to understand that you are one little cog in this large system. And it's overwhelming. Well, let me just take a moment, and let's just say this is the only moment that I'll ever take doing this, is to, to praise you on the show, which is to say, I think that you're right about that. I think the trick, though, is how you, and this really goes to a lot of what we've, we want to talk about on this show which is community cohesion. The trick is when you stay in the place that's small, how you can really insert into that space like cutting edge ideas and actually make stuff happen. Because that's why people usually go to the city is they want to be part of that. And I actually think that with globalism and the rent increase and everything like that, the cities aren't that place anymore, actually. Because it's just so expensive. You can't really experiment. There's no canvas because it's just too expensive to do stuff. So I think what you've done, the reason that you're not going insane right now is you've managed to do that in this space. I I didn't feel when I was 20 that I could do that. I felt sure I couldn't. And I think that's right. I wouldn't have. So I had to kind of force myself upon the city to get my hustle going, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, this... I already know what we can talk about for next week because this hit, this strikes. My buddy just moved into the Valley. He's the chief of staff for a mayor around here. And he moved here. He was, he was working for hedge phones and everything. He gave up that to, to follow this passion. And we met, had some beers at Packard's last night and just talked about city planning and all of those projects on that, that kind of city level and experimenting. And I think that we're in a really cool age of, you know, I'm 32 now and I'm seeing the, you know, power be bestowed upon people my age, whereas in my 20s, it was a lot of this kind of, um, 
you had a lot of energy, but you didn't have the authority to do anything with it. And now it's taking a, you know, it's, it's now coming into fruition and coming into a reality that we are handling a lot of this business. And it's really, it's, it's really cool. I was really excited about the conversation. That's cool. And I, you know, I think as someone who's 49 now, or 48, I'm 48, I think. You don't look a day over 47. So. I know, I really don't. Um, someone who's older, I also want a second act. You know, I'm not ready yeah. really to kind of hang it up. And I was talking to someone, uh, um, someone I know, Emily, about this and about how much talent there actually is in the Valley, even amongst our middle-aged set. But it has trouble expressing itself in any way that doesn't feel just like a novelty. You know, yeah. how do you... So, if you're not going to be in New York City or London or Paris, is there a way to find a way to really, like, connect with the geist, what Hegel would call the ghost, right? The zeitgeist of your age and really make something happen that's, that's very real and very fertile and not just, like, a side project. You know, and so, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm a generation above you and I'm not necessarily ready to hang up my, my cleats so to speak. I want another run at the court. And that's what this show, is, for me, is about to a certain extent. And I think there's probably a lot of people out there who can relate to that, that there's so much skill, actually, when you get older. And then, you know, there's all this stuff that kind of gets in the way. And I think this actually goes to the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago about cults. You know, the yeah. sannyasins were able to unleash all of the skill of, like, people in their 30s and 40s and 20s um, upon the project. Because they were all living together and that just, that cohesion being in the middle of nowhere and trying to make something happen is magic oh for sure if there's creativity in the gas tank it doesn't matter what your age is and i think that if you go against the grain and you're confident about how you approach that then you can really accomplish you can accomplish a lot i think that you Mm. need to uh understand and leverage your age what i tell my students all the time is when they when you're going out to get press passes you both tell them that you're a student, you leverage your age, and they go, and people bat their eyes and go, oh, you know, a student news production, and then you also look at it in a very mature, professional fashion, and you leverage you leverage your age right there. I think that every age has a leverage that they can use, and as you get older, it's, it's you look, you're looked at as more of an authority and a mentor, and you kind of leverage those, and, um, but if the creativity is there, if you have that initiative, if you can go out and kind of manifest some of these things, even like this, this radio show is awesome. Right. You know? It's, it's so, so tell me how to, I think I'm 47. I think, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm 71. So I'm 47, almost half century old. What's you got less lever- gray in your beard than me. Well, I I'm, dye I'm my kind beard. Of bitter. I dye my beard. That's why. <laughs> you put w- one hair by one hair, you whiten it right there? No, I just haven't dyed it in a while. Oh, okay. So, yeah. My wife's uh, ambivalent about that, but... You know, uh, so what is a, what do you say, what's the leverage at my age? What do I leverage? Uh, so the first thing is that you have a lot of experience in, in a lot of different things. So when we talk, you have experience as a tour guide. You have experience in a, in a rock band. You have experience as a teacher. So you can take all of these experiences. Pris- prison too. <laughs> in prison. There we go. So you pivot all, so you can incorporate yourself into a lot of different um into a lot of different cultural, you know, scenarios, and uh, and people w- respect you because of that, because of that of that knowledge, and because there it, it's not if you don't it, the 
thing is you have to not use it in an isolating manner or a gatekeeping manner. Right. Like, I know I've been in this profession or I've been in industry for X amount of years. You don't know what the heck you're talking about. It's, oh, I have some experience in that. Uh, you know, and and you can get into those conversations. And I think that that's, you know, if you do that right, with age comes that experience and comes that admiration from younger generations. Yeah, I think that's right. And also I think that what you do in those conversations isn't almost sharing your experience. What you do is you hold the space for younger people to talk in a way that kind of the fact that you have experience allows you to kind of guide a little bit. It's really less about you saying your experience is that they acknowledge that you have had that experience and then they talk and then you might ask a question that comes from your, that's a Socratic method, right? Yeah. That you might ask a question that kind of comes from your experience, ideally, you know, and then you're, then the students, but I still would say what you're saying doesn't really float my boat yet, you know, and I'm not saying we need to figure it out because I think that I still want to, I still have my teeth. You know, I don't want to just be in an advisory role. I, I want to be in a vehicle. And so what is that vehicle? And I do think, you know, doing this is really excellent. And I really want yeah. it to spread across, uh, you know, all generations, but definitely some people who are in my strata of age who are like, yeah, that's, uh, something, there's something that we can do here, actually. We can't, and it doesn't have to be just, I don't know, just like a kind of like one-off or just anything like that. It can be actually like interesting and potent. And I do think the energy is leaving the cities. Because it's just too expensive and money ruins everything. Yeah. Now, whether it's in the valley, I don't know. Whether the ghost, the geist will visit the valley, I'm not sure. I think it might be here. So, yeah. You know. and, now, can I, I'm sorry, yeah, what, did you, what should we talk about next week? Because you were all excited. I would love to do uh, the future of city planning or okay. the shift yeah. of the kind of urbanization into uh, kind of more rural areas or vice versa. I had a really good conversation. Um, I'll see if my, if my buddy around. Okay. So Yeah, yeah. Um, then I actually looked up a new word recently. It's a French word for when urbanization spreads into the countryside. And I can't totally remember it, but I'll find it. Nice. You know, those are like French words, right? Urban. Yeah, yeah. A lot of those suburban, obviously. You know. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say about the that um, that generational, you know, advantages or, you know, leveraging those, you also have to look at the disadvantages. So when I came into um, when I came into the districts, I was 26. I was very involved in union matters. I was very you know active in um, you know kind of school councils and things like that. I'd go to a school committee meeting and or a city council meeting. And uh, when I first started, it was you know I could see the smile. It, this is not you know it's kind of non-intentional of people they have they had good intentions but i could see that they it was a novel i was a novelty there it was you know oh you know uh jeremy's coming to the 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 city council meeting to talk about technology um you know like what a go-getter at such a young age but you know now i'm 32 now i've i've established myself and so um i think that things carry a little bit more merit and weight Whereas before it was kind of like toting around like, oh, you know, like, look at this young kind of go-getter and not taking me as seriously. Um, And, you know, did I kind of actually use that to my advantage a lot, too. I recognize that at an early part. Um, But you also have to look at where people start, you know, that those stereotypes start to take um, to become a disadvantage as well. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Now they're, they're like, oh, man. Here comes oh, Jeremy geez. again. <laughs> you know. <How> many- <laughs> no, but I, I, I yeah. do get your point. And, you know, there's, you leverage, if you over leverage, obviously you're too cutesy, that's not really going to work either. So yeah. you really want to, like, have some goal in mind. For sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
Okay, so I just want to remind people of the number 413-545-3691. And we are going to start talking about <clears throat> decline of religion in the United States, but I do want to encourage you, and you hear anything and you want to chime in on, this is an interesting conversation in itself. For sure. I mean, we, can, we could look at the valley genera- generationally, just generally, generationally, excuse me. Um, and I think that's like something too. Intergenerational stuff is a big issue actually, right? Yeah. Big issue for cohesion in society. Because if you don't have it, then, um, you, you know, yeah. Okay. So, Waylon, um, let's talk a little bit about your own story in terms of religion. You were brought okay. up. Yeah. So, um, I was brought up in a, in a Catholic household. Uh, my, uh, my, my grandmother is, was very religious, um, very, very religious. My, my mother and her sisters were very religious. Uh, and so, you know, trickled down through generations, um, it, uh, it was something that was very, you know, from an early age, we would go to church every Sunday and go to, uh, you know, uh, CCD, Catholic uh, school on Sundays. Um, and so as I, I, as I developed and as I grew up, I mean, this was just, it was just standard run of the mill. You, you make your first communion, you know, um, you have a party, you know, I watched my brother do this. I was the second child of three. And so... Um, it's just kind of, it, you, you know, the, the events were just commonplace in my entire family. Uh, as I grew older, as I, you know, um, went to high school and started to, um, to grapple with some issues more on an existential level, um, I realized that I had questions that were not being answered. Um, even before this, I'm going to step back for a second. And I had a, I, I did have a bad experience with, um, the two teachers that I had in that CCD class. And I think that that was the first opening what was, of so where, just to clarify what was briefly yeah. bad, what was the bad experience? So before this, I had, um, the mother of one of my best friends was the CCD teacher, and I, and I really loved and respected her. Um, it really made it enjoyable. It wasn't the content that was really there, and you know, as a teacher, uh, it's not necessarily the content, it's how you approach that content and everything like that. So she just was a really phenomenal person. We got this new, these two, this couple, and I think that what they did is they were trying to find some sort of um, moral validation by doing this. And they didn't have any teaching background. And they were very ag- aggressive and I would even say mean um, in their approach. Uh, and so me, I mean, you, you know me, uh, I have very, I'm pretty bad with authority figures. You know, I, I, I like to think outside the box. If I'm challenged, I'll, I'll kind of push my limits and, and everything. Uh, and they kind of ruled with an iron fist here. So that kind of set the stage for me kind of having my own both external and internal battle with them, but what ultimately became some of the ideology of Catholicism. And uh, once I got into once I got into high school, there was some sort of, you know, the more macroscopic things start I, I start looking at like um, LGBTQ and gay rights and gay marriage and things that I'm trying to navigate myself, but I'm also being directed towards an answer for that I don't necessarily agree with. Mm. And so, th- what I found was it wasn't necessarily I wasn't necessarily having a debate. It was something that was being dictated to me, and I had a really, I really had a trouble with some of those, some of those principles. Okay, so but let's look at that for a minute because I totally understand that. That makes a lot of sense to me. 
On the other hand, how do you ever get an organization of any size that's going to satisfy every issue that all of its people are going to engage in? You know, I, I, you know, obviously that's a sticky issue, and I understand that that might be a deal breaker, so to speak. I get that. Um, but you do run into the problem of the potential of cherry-picking issues. You know, whatever oh, yeah. system it is, there's going to be something that's going to alienate you and say, well, I'm out of here. And how much of that becomes, like, how much can you live with where you're like, okay, this is what Rome is saying, and maybe, they, maybe this is strong in some countries, but the American Catholic Church is obviously looking at this with, like, a wink, a little bit. This is, yeah. this, is, this is not my experience in the church I'm going to. I know that there are LGBTQ people in the, the parish that I'm going to. And I can just live with this for the time being. I think it will change in the next 30 years or I'm out of here. Like, this is my concern. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's the, my relationship with religion almost became something of a marriage, right? I mean... There's, it's all compounded things. So it's all the little things, the, um, the rudeness at the, you know, CCD school, um, the having to, uh, you know, go to church even on Sundays and sing songs that I'm not really, you know, that aren't really meaningful to me. It was all just things that compounded over time. Uh, and it was hard too, because I mean, my parents, my, my mother and my grandmother, especially, um, you know, it was very meaningful for them. And I saw that it was very meaningful for them and they were having really deep religious experiences. And so when I didn't have those deep religious experiences, there was a guilt associated with that. Um, you know, it was a very questioning time for, for my own individuality too. All right. Uh, thank you, Jeremy. And we're going to come back to that. We do have a caller. Can you introduce yourself? I'm, I'm Robin. I'm Norm's uh, wife. You have a lovely Hi, voice. <laughs> what a lovely voice. You really shouldn't have told them that you're my wife. We could have really had some fun with that. Um, sweetie, what's your thoughts? Well, I was excited about this topic of the supposed decline of religion in America. And I, and I guess I would like, I have two things. My first thought was, you know, are you guys sure that that's actually true? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we do very much live in a bubble, and so I think there's a particular class and demographic where that might be more true, um, of which we are a part, but I'm not sure that that's true for all of America. Yep, good point. So I think that's kind of important. And then the, then I was thinking about this intergenerational conversation that you were having, which is a really important um, subject that's very meaningful to me, because... You know, the, the, it, there's a direct link with the decline of religion and this sort of compartmentalizing of uh, generations. The yeah. religion used to be the main place where everybody, where everybody um, mingled and got to know each other, or one of the main places. So yeah. I just thought there was a really direct connection there. Yeah, I think you're really right. I mean, the only couple of times that we've been to church, right, for Christmas, that really struck me that we were in the pews with people who were much older than us. And how right. often do we actually turn to our, the people sitting next to us and find someone who's in their 60s or 70s? It just doesn't right. happen. Yeah, right. that makes a lot of sense. And then there's this kind of cycle of life. I mean, when's right. last, we've been to a funeral recently, but that's the only funeral we've been to in 10 years. <laughs> right. 
If right. You, if you're part of a church community, you're going to be going to funerals much more often. And again, right, because you're going to be relating in a much more regular way with older people. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, and then the older people get to relate much more regularly with younger people, which is also a very important part of these stages of life. You know, it's it's it feels very unnatural that it's that it's not that way. You know, I have that. Um, one of my great ambitions is to create a foundation or an organization called Adopt a Grandma. You know, right. where wow. because like we. <laughs> We all live so, so separately from, you know, our mothers and our grandmothers. And um, I think that there's a real hunger to, um, yeah, to connect with people that have, do have a lot more experience, you know. Yeah, and of so, course, we already have. So we're really blessed. <laughs> right. Shout out to Lynn. Shout out to Shout Lynn. Out. I mean, who's just a <laughs> really remarkable person. So thank you so much, sweetie, for calling. I love you. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for Rob. Yeah, yeah. See you guys later. So that's some good food for thought. I mean, yeah, sure. I think what she's saying about the, I mean, that's something, that homework we probably should have done. I think at least where we are, there's a decline in religion, you know, just Definitely based an on. Increase in, increase in, in individuals that um, deem themselves atheists and agnostics, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. I mean, the, the nice thing about this show is that we try to avoid getting deep into, you know, um, armaments of data and facts like that not that we're trying to you know throw anything like that out the window but more philosophical approach but sure. yeah very but I, good but, point but i also think very what, good point. I, I agree with that like yeah we're not data driven but what robin's saying about this like the american south you know that's important like there are places in america where everyone's getting back from church and what's their experience like you know yeah and uh, i mean i'm a skeptical of that too um and not to not to demean anybody's um, you know be- meaningful experience with religion, but when you see the com- the commodification of religion, these super churches, uh, you know the the um, the pastors with big you know private air private jets and things like that, you really just have to question why where though? kind why? of society is because going there. This is what you know. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the Bhagwan. And the sannyasins, mm-hmm. you know, he had 90 Rolls Royces. He had a private jet. Yeah. And I've really been thinking about that, mulling that over. And, you know, he talks directly about wealth. And if my people want me to have 90 Rolls Royces, I will have them. And also, couldn't you make the argument, if you're the Bhagwan or the minister of a super church, can't you make the argument that money, in fact, is power and reach? And you are running against this huge consumer capitalist machine. And you can either lay down and just get smothered by it, or you can accumulate resources and try to push your vision of what Sunday looks like on the world, what your vision of Sunday through Saturday looks like. I mean, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah, but you're saying this like they're combating this this kind of capitalist society when they're actually the forerunners. They're, I mean, they're they're very heavily embedded in this. Um, there's a great... Uh, there's a great YouTube video um, on this exact thing uh, of two uh, super church um, pastors talking about how God has, you know, wished upon them having private jets. And so they, they feel insulted when individuals call them out on that. I think that that's using your religion in a deceptive manner in which to get your own material wealth. 
And I think that that's the dangerous, that's, that's where religion gets really dangerous, is when the re- religion, like, like the Bhagwan, the Bhagwan, it's not that the people want the Bhagwan to have 50 Rolls Royces, it's that the Bhagwan told the people that they want him to have the, and then he, and then he flips it around. I'm not sure about that. Uh, you know, I think that the Bhagwan would say, I am an ego dump, and I'm also a material dump. And my people want this for me because they don't want it for themselves. That, in fact, this is a displacement of ego and resources. They're happier without. I mean, I, I honestly think that's the argument. And I, I really don't, I don't know if the Bhagwan really wanted 90s Rolls Royces. I just don't know. And I can see it as a legitimate argument. I am going to take your wealth and your ego, and I'm going to store it in this little magical place at the top of the mountain. And you guys are going to be liberated because now you don't have to think about that stuff. You don't get a car. You don't get anything. You get the red clothes. And, but this is this, I am returning you to a, an Eden where you don't have to be concerned with this stuff. Yeah, but that, so, I, so when you're, we're talking about cults, I mean, when we were talking about that, that's a, a very radical form of religion here. So just scale that back over to what we're talking about. Just um, even just going to, you know, to church, uh, you know, uh, I believe my the the priest at, at the, my church, he had, you know, his house. He had another house on the Cape, right? And it's just like that's fine. I mean, it's 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 modest, but it's upper middle, you know, upper middle class modest. He has two he has two separate houses and everything. There's a lot of people in town that can't afford those things and given they still they haven't like disregarded their the entire philosophy of the American way they're still very much a part of this system if given the opportunity or a chance or to analyze that situation they would go hey I want a house like that too but at the same time they're given five dollars ten dollars you know a, a head when they go into the when they go into church yeah, and they're think- giving they're giving that to you know I would feel much much better if that was happening, and the priest made a decision to donate all of those proceeds to, you know, uh, homeless children or something like and that. And just live in a very modest house in town. Yeah, That's for really sure. surprises me. It surprises me. It feels like you're, you're forcing them into this paradox where they're hypocrites if they have any kind of luxury in their life. You know, these are people who've gone to college yeah. and then have advanced degrees probably to do what they're doing. They're important people in the community. Why should... It's hard enough to get people to be a priest and now you want to yeah. take away anything above a $45,000 income. I don't... See, this is, this is where I get a little bit like you're holding religions up to this really unfair set of standards that they can only feel. And this is what Osho, ta- or the Bhagwan, talks about. He says, don't bother me with that. I am the, I am the guru to the rich people. All the other religions are practicing, you know, and I'm not saying I'm a supporter of Bhagwan, by the way, but I think it's at least provocative and interesting. And he's just saying, he would say to you, why? Like, why? Uh, so... I mean, this this is the thing. Go back to the roots of we're gonna let's say Christianity, okay? Let's go back to the roots of the biggest rock star in Christianity, Jesus Christ. Okay, was Jesus Christ rolling around with the with the ancient equivalent of fifty Rolls Royces? No, he was on the streets. He was dirty. He was washing feet. Like 
The thing is, we're so far removed. It's just like the forefathers. Mm. All of a sudden, mm. you create, you have an idea of the forefathers, and then as time becomes removed, you start to generate a narrative based on who you're your version of the forefathers. So the forefathers of all these religions did not intend for a super church to be around. They want they want the pauper. They want that person that realizes that material wealth is 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 basically an evil and to and if you can if you do have that, if you can generate all of that, you should be distributing it accordingly. Huh. Yeah, you got me stunned here. And I don't think you have me stunned because you're right. Just to be clear, <laughs> like it doesn't feel like that kind of stunned. And I get what you're saying. By the way, Jesus had the advantage of dying young. Yeah, true. And that's relevant. You know, only the good die young. Yeah, like Jimi uh, Hendrix. Yeah, and, and all those other good-looking people. Uh, Muhammad might be an interesting one to look at, for example, because he's, he's a prophet who lived to an old age. And I just don't know if luxury found him or if he found luxury. I just don't not really sure about what you're saying. I feel like you're setting up these religions to fail because you're using such a strident or strict uh, metrics upon them. I don't think I'm setting them up to fail. I'm saying that they are they are the ones that are doing well are doing tremendously well because they're because they're deviating from the origins of where they started as a religion to adapt themselves to a modern society and in doing so they've kind of tainted their religion so i mean i i think that the the new pope is or i mean new but our current pope is 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 awesome he's taking the the catholic church in a in a very modern way and he's looking at everything with compassion and through a new lens and i think that two things one uh it does deviate a little bit from from where you know catholicism started it's a deviation of the of the kind of um principles of it but at the same time it's modernizing it it's making it more accessible to individuals this is a conversation i don't feel really adept to address but i just want to throw something out which is this pope might also kill catholicism because the argument would be you know that the Pope is trying to augment Catholicism so that younger people can feel like a more of a place in it and it adapts with the times. But the, all the people actually going to these churches are older. And so if he loses them, it could really end any kind yeah. of... I'll say this. There are scandals far more scandalous than the Pope modernizing Catholicism sure. for its downfall. And we can just leave that one at that. No, There's I know a lot of I, I other that. things that could be coming into play for the downfall of Catholicism. A- absolutely, and um, you get what I'm saying too. Yeah, is that when of you course. you're always balancing it's an assimilation. A, a belief system's always balancing the fundamentalist side of it. The people really want to follow it very closely. That get a lot of edification from following it closely. That get a lot of joy from making it strict and close because, in a lot of ways. Strictness is liberating, actually. There's a liberation that comes with it. And on the other side, the people who want to adapt it so that it's more meaningful for them, it's always a balancing act between that. Scandals aside, you know, any belief system is always wrestling with, are we going to assimilate? Are we going to move this forward? Because if we do, we're going to lose our base. We're going to lose all of these people who really love what we do. I'll give you an example. When my mom was a child... In Boston, the Pope, 
Vatican basically said that they had to start doing the mass in English, not Latin, because in my early part of my mom's childhood, it was done in Latin. And there was one renegade priest who said, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it in English. And they excommunicated this priest. No way. Yeah. Really? And he Jeez. wanted to do it in Latin. And I can see why he would, because it's beautiful. Yeah. You know, I also see why the Vatican wants it in English. You know, because they, want, they don't want this veil between people and the word. But I also get that the Latin thing is transporting. So I feel like you're always um, really balancing that. We're going to be back in just a minute um, after a few promos. And we'll continue our conversation. I want to remind you guys that 413-545-3691 is our number. And we're happy to take your calls. What's happening? What's happening? Hey! Hungry for music? Yeah! Like basements? Yeah! Come fill your stomachs with some tasty subs and your head with some tasty tunes at Greeno's Open Mic Nights this Thursday from 7 to 9 in the basement of Greeno. Yeah! Yo! Are you in search to expand your cultural and artistic sensibilities? Well, then look no further than at the Smith College Museum of Art. The SCMA will be hosting their exhibit, Object Histories, from the African continent to the SCMA galleries. With a collection spawning 80 years, the exhibit helps portray the vast and nuanced cultures of the continent with mediums of African art, ranging from sculpture, textile, painting, photography, and even video. For more information on how to enjoy this collection, you can check out their website at www.smith.edu slash artmuseum. Hello, this is Mitch Moskal, and I invite you to join me Saturday mornings for the Early Bird Polka Show. We're here to help kickstart your weekend with the best in polka music from today and yesterday. And you can join in the fun with your requests and dedications. So join in the polka fun every Saturday morning from 6 to 8 a.m. only on WMUA-FM at 91.1 on your radio dial or online at www.wmua.org for the Early Bird Polka Show. back with Barbarian in the Valley. We've been talking about religion and the decline of religion, at least where we live. And a lot of stuff is percolating, as it always does here with Jeremy Whalen. Um, interesting Polish promo for a Polish radio show. After this, Whalen, where are you going? I'm going to a Polish horseshoes tournament to try to win three straight years in a row. Three straight years in a three row. Three straight years. Yeah, yeah. Now, just really briefly, what is Polish horseshoes? Okay. You get two ski poles, put them in the ground, about 20 feet away from each other. Bottles, empty bottles on top of it. And you take a Frisbee and you try to hit the bottle off. And there's points that are accrued right there. Yeah. But uh, this is an especially heated year because we came back from a three-game deficit to take the championship. And the... You know, winning is one thing. That was a tremendous win. It was like the 28-3 to comeback from in the Super Bowl for the Pats. But more importantly, as a Whalen, I beat my brother. And to see the agony and defeat of my brother oh, was just so. as sweet as the victory. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> Have you ever sat down and listed all the things you're involved with? Oh, uh, there's 
Yeah, no, there's just. I mean, too it, many. it actually, I think, it would be worth doing. You get a big sheet of paper, and put it on your wall. By the way, Whalen's classroom, he has on his wall letters up of students talking about how great he is. Yeah, well, there's one that sticks out. Um, it was from a one Norm Cody. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did plant an angry letter on that wall. What did it say again? It was like, "Thank you for ruining my life." <laughs> Your van stinks. <laughs> you know, it was a way, and it stayed there for a couple of days before you realized it, I think. Yeah. yeah I, you know, and I probably I, looked straight at it, too. I actually, I actually think that you could be my first client for this new therapy practice I want to do. I, actually, and we, I think we talked about oh, this. Oh, I think so. I think, I think so. This it's actually a genius. Great, it's a genius idea. It's called vernacular therapies. And vernacular, the word vernacular comes from Latin. Verna means a slave and... Na- uh, lacular or whatever means tongue, slave tongue. And the Roman emperors would, em- some Roman emperors, the more intelligent ones, would employ slaves to be near them when they had their parades, their tributes, and the slave would be whispering in the emperor's ear, you're nothing, these people don't really like you, they're talking <laughs> about your breath stinks, you're fat, you know, all these things, because those Roman emperors knew that if someone wasn't grounding them, that they would just fly off into space with all this adoration. So I actually think that I could be your vernacular therapist. And I think that this could be, a, first of all, a big moneymaker. Because how many CEOs out there oh, need yeah. this? And you, would just, you wouldn't have to be mean. You would just talk to them for an hour and research them a little bit. Talk about, yeah, you know, you're doing well there, but, you know, these people don't like you. And that's okay. And, you know, just kind of bring people back to earth. Yeah. The only thing that you have to worry about, though, is kind of like the antibacterial hand hand sanitizer. It's if you get too much of it, then you start tuning it out, and then all of a sudden you make an even worse person than when you started with. Oh, that's interesting. So you, you have to do some sort of hmm. kind of meaningful reflection and analysis of this to make people... They have to be kind of hard truths, really. Yes. If you're not fat, you're not going to say they're fat. You know, if well, they're... Well, no. <laughs> that wouldn't make any sense. You're fat. No, I'm not. Yeah, you are. I don't know. Let's keep moving. <laughs> I just want you to feel bad. Um, no, I think you're really right about that. It can't just be a shtick. Oh, you're yeah. not just abusing them. Although it's a, it's a thing. I think many powerful people go and get beat or, or like sadomasochist. Oh, yeah. That's not an uncommon trope. That someone who's really powerful is also enjoys masochism almost as a necessary outlet. But I think you're right. The vernacular therapy systems, or VTS as I'm calling it, is something that has to be thoughtful at the same time, but honest and blunt. Yeah. You know, like yeah. honest and blunt and, and reminding people also, like, this all goes by so fast. So, you know, the graveyards are filled with emperors. Exactly. You know, they're, they're everywhere. So what do you really want to do and how do you really want to act and be yeah. in the world? Yeah, cool. All right, so let's get back to a little bit what I'm perceiving, and I often perceive this, and I could be wrong, where modern religion is kind of given an impossible thing because consumer capitalists can be as hypocritical as it wants to be, you know, because it's just sell, sell, sell. There's no standard that we really hold it up to. We get that the marketplace is wildly efficient and that the the goal is to make, just spread goods and make money and stuff like that. No one has any trouble with the gross successes of all these people involved in consumer capitalists. But a priest has a second home God forbid, on the Cape, and you're upset about it. By the way, I mean, if I'm a priest, I want a second home. I want to be able to get away from, I, I think it's healthy 
for that person to be able to, like, that's a heavy job. It's an intense job. And if you don't have somewhere else to go than your town, you know, that's a lot. It's a lot to just be in your town. <sighs> yeah. I mean, the the problem is that there the there is no there's they're so intertwined. I mean the even even without paying taxes as a as a religious entity and everything, you're still heavily involved in a capitalist society. So they are not they are not removed from each other. So I mean the thing that I have a problem with is the the church is a church or a religious leader who operates kind of like a CEO, and that's how kind of in this managerial position instead of a philosoph- instead of that purely philosophical uh, position. I'd rather m- have my church leaders and I, I get it. I mean, we now live in a global society where you, you, you know, have infinite reach in access to individuals. It's not that, you know, you have a small town where, you know, the, the church is in the center of it and everybody comes and uses it in, in, for that intended communal space. You know, it's like, Going back to, the, we keep on going back to the super churches, but you know, like you got to you got to drive to this place with thousands of people. How much of the community is really being is is the leader investing in that community versus just trying to expand the reach of that of that church? Well, let me speak to this a little bit because I actually know a minister of a, what would be a super church. Now, he's retired. He does smaller churches that are kind of struggling. He, it's a Southern Methodist, and a lot of these churches are really. You know, he says we're burying our people. Like, they're all very old. But for many years, he was the chief pastor or minister in Lakeland, Florida, uh, of really one of the biggest and most important Southern Methodist churches. And I have an interview with him where he talks about what that ch- how that church runs. Now, he wasn't going in private chats. He definitely was living a, a middle to upper middle class, you know, life. You know, he wasn't super deprived, but he was not. He's not one of the, what you're talking about. But I mean, boy, it is such a profound conversation I had with him, a really beautiful conversation where you, it, actually he was wildly invested in his community, like yeah. just so deep. As and, all great and also there were assistant leaders yeah, are. assistant pastors and there's this whole apparatus uh, of support for people who really need it. You know, in a place like Lakeland, you may not go see a couples therapist. You may see your pastor. You yeah. know, when you're in the hospital, they go see you. It, it, when there's a funeral, they come and they bury you. I mean, it's so powerful. And what, when I hear... Do you want to chime in? And yeah, I just want to say about the, about the therapist, okay? We live in an uh, age of increasing um, demand for kind of those psychological services, the therapy, the psychologist, things like that. Um, and I think that what happens there is you get a, a good leader a religious leader has got to understand this you get with the therapist or the psychologist a um an analysis without necessarily the um underlying foundation of guilt so if you commit adultery okay and you go to your therapist and talk about that you're going to be given an analysis of it but if you go to your to your priest, you know, like that was one of the biggest things, like one of the most profound memories that I have is going to confession for the first time and having to really think about, I was like trying to come up with things that I was doing wrong because I was supposed to feel wrong about that. Um, you know, and there wasn't necessarily an analysis part. It was, you know, I stole, I, you know, I swore at my brother, I ran away from home and, you know, I, 
did another thing, right? And then it was like, okay, your sins are forgiven. But where, you know, a good leader, I mean, a good therapist or a good religious leader in this sense will understand that their role in making you a whole person. Sure. And there's good teachers and mediocre teachers and not very good teachers, good doctors, mediocre doctors. And so you're only going to get so many. My concern is, is that, you know, schools will be here. Hospitals will be here, but I do still feel like you're setting these churches up to standards that they, that they can only fail at. And I wonder, just hear me now, because you and I probably both saw all the same movies growing up. You're younger than me. but And so much of consumer capitalist, capitalism has narratives where people leave churches. I mean, how much are we been brainwashed that leaving the church equals freedom? Yeah. I mean, in what in what cases though? You know, like you're, we're watching. Are we watching uh, something on uh, Mormonism? Are we watching something on Scientology? You know, like the ones the documentaries I've seen on the people that have been either excommunicated or left the church. Usually, I fall on the side of empathy for that individual because they've made rational choices and decisions about their analysis of that religion. And the documentary filmmaker would agree with you. Yeah, yeah, it's true. interesting. I mean, for it's sure. interesting. Like, um, I was showing a video in class, and you know, YouTube does ads yeah. before, so then you know, I try to get past them as soon as possible. But the ad was for a a network that just showed Christian movies, and <laughs> I can't remember what it's called. But there was absolutely nothing wrong with the movies they were showing. You know, they yeah. were nice movies, but a lot of the students had such a negative reaction, and it's interesting to me that. Like, that would happen. That there's such a, like... It feels like prejudice and bigotry against Christianity. That's the only way I can describe it. And let me give you another example. I was... Someone... They used to uh, broadcast Jonathan Edwards' church over the radio in Florence or something. And someone really took umbrage at that. Like, oh, I can't believe they're broadcasting the Edwards' church here. And I was kind of like, well, why? Like, what's... (laughs) It's pretty cool. It's good people, you know? Christ was cool. I mean... Are we not going to, you know, it, would you be okay if we were broadcasting from a synagogue or a mosque? What is it about it? I just feel like our culture kind of poisons people against religion. I think, I mean, in talking just from my personal reflections of my mother and my grandmother, I think that religion can play a vital role in making a person a good person. I think that the... Um, the set principles of the the Catholic upbringing that my um, mother and my grandmother had um, played an absolutely key role in their development. But had they not had religion, they would still be good people. It goes back to Kant's and more, you know, categorical imperative. Are you? Do you do something because your religion says it's good to do, or if you don't do it, you're going to sin and go to hell? Or are you doing that because it's better for the betterment of society or it's because it's just, it's, it's a good thing to do. And that's where I get hung up with religion. I get hung up on, on the idea that I, that there is an incentive to do something. And if, if not, then bad. And if so, then good. Okay. I'd rather just, I'd rather just have the action just play out. And my argument to you is you're getting hung up too soon. That you're actually not parsing like even more granular specifics. Like, I get that this part of the religion's not good. I, I, I don't really like this. But in the greater good of things, isn't it good to have a, where, a place where community meets? 
Like, yeah. you know, this is the cherry picking thing. I where, think, yeah. Mm. I think more importantly, what's what religion? Why I see or why I see a rise in atheism, a rise in agnostic agnostic principles and philosophy is that religion was the placeholder for a well-established uh, government. And so now we have hundreds and, and hundreds and thousands of years to get it straight, to tweak it, to, to do a whole bunch of things where in when you didn't have, when you couldn't go to a, or a lawless land or something, you're going to come in with crusaders, you're going to come in with um, religion because you have the Ten Commandments, right? You have a set principles to abide by and it's very easy it's very black and white to look at those things and to start looking at it so when you have an advanced set of principles because of you know legislated legislation and government and the complexities of your law then that starts to uh take away from where the initial historical context was but it doesn't solve the problem of kind of the existential crisis that people have. Okay, thank you. And I was going to come I, back to okay, that. I, I, saw, I, saw, I saw you a little well, skeptical. My, my where face I was, going. was two things. One, that is that, okay, now having that established that, and now we're moving work and we're moving other things. Now, this net that was there that we didn't really need, now we all of a sudden need it. And I also just want to point out we have a new set of words where in which we go into other countries, invade other countries that's based on oh, yeah. Westphalian nationalist, uh, you know, liberal bourgeois culture. Okay, so, and there's something called feminist imperialism, for example, where, like, this is an interesting thing. If, if people out there look it up, where it's like we use human rights to actually invade countries and then throw bombs on them. I, I'm not really, I don't really want to take a side on this particularly right now because it's the end of the show, but any belief system uses its belief to insert itself out in the world, whether it's a minister taking a private jet or the United States coming up with war claims or whatever it is. So, yeah, twas ever thus a little bit. Yeah. And just a kind of a closing remark. I think that, you know, what I always say is the best individuals in the history of mankind have been religious and the worst individuals have been religious. And... What you need to do, I much more emphasize and I appreciate the human that's leading those charges and the thoughts and decisions that go into their humanity rather than some sort of, um, you know, that, that existential unknown. And if they use that for it, that's so be it. If they can positively channel that, that's excellent. But um, I'm just kind of a pragmatist on that. Yeah. Well, you're many things. <laughs> um, so, Jeremy, why don't you tell us a little bit about how your game's going to go in a couple minutes. You're ready to jump out of here. Yeah, so they want us to start at 1. I told them 2.30. I mean, obviously, I'm the champ, so I get to, you I get to set the rules. How many people are going to show up at this thing? Probably about 30. 30, 30 people. Okay, 35, cool. Somewhere in there. All right, oh, so yeah. we'll have to check in next week.